As the world changes, we need a new way of thinking. Welcome to Disruptive Education, a podcast engaging with real-world-ready issues. How do we challenge toxic masculinity? How do we continue to open up dialogue about mental health? And what is more important, well-being or the need to chase high performance? My first guest reflects on his personal journey through a gambling addiction to highlight the importance of mental health awareness and the risks that are placed on young people through a high-pressured environment. Author of Might Bite, Patrick Foster now devotes his life to campaigning for greater awareness over gambling addiction. He speaks in schools and organisations and uses his own story to warn of the dangers that he fell into. Patrick, it's really great to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for being our, our first guest. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks so much for, for having me. I feel honoured to be the first guest. Oh, well, it's, it's lovely having you here. And um, on the back of your book that's been published now for a few weeks and has had the most extraordinary action, has that taken you by surprise? Yeah, it has, if I'm honest. It was obviously going to be a big thing, sort of having my book published and my story being sort of so out there. I never expected it to get the exposure that it has and and the feedback has, has made it so worthwhile. You never quite know how people are going to respond. It still feels a bit surreal and a bit strange seeing my name on the front of a, a book cover, describing myself as an author. But yeah, I'm really pleased with with how it's how it's gone and and as I said the feedback seems to have been really positive so I certainly can't complain. Well that's great and it's obviously having a huge impact on students and schools and organizations that you're currently speaking to. Yeah I think so obviously I knew that my story was sort of quite well received amongst the sort of student population because my day job was was to share it and and I knew that it had that kind of impact with them but one of the motivations for doing it was to make it sort of accessible to everybody really I recognize the importance not just for for young people but adults um, and the part that other people play so I didn't know that kind of people thought it was a very powerful and impactful story otherwise I don't think I would have written the book but it's a bit different when when it's in the form of a book because there's just so much you have more you have to say. And of course that impact comes through straight away in, in chapter one of the book where you describe in raw detail the events of March 2018 when you stood on the platform at Slough train station intent on taking your life. A WhatsApp from your brother stopped you and from that moment you began your journey to recovery. How did that moment feel to you? Yeah, it's obviously very difficult to articulate in many ways exactly what was going through my mind. Obviously, looking back, it was the best decision I ever made and so glad that that I did it. I think the big thing for me was the turning point there was actually thinking about other people, not just myself. I think people talk about addiction making you very selfish. I realized I was. And I always find it really difficult when people talk about that topic. It is a very sensitive topic and people use the word selfish because actually when you're in that situation, you almost feel like you're being selfless because you think actually such a burden to myself and everybody else. This is why I'm doing it. But actually, I realized the impact and devastation it would leave behind me at that point. And I didn't want to do it to those people because I just thought, you know what, they 
they don't deserve that they haven't done anything to deserve that and that was the big turning point and and of course I get asked now all the time well do you think you really wanted to do it? I don't know the answer. I'm just glad I didn't. And and obviously one of the, the major motivations for, for writing the book was to help people understand that, that that's never, ever the solution to any problem for exactly the reasons I just said. So yeah, it was obviously a very testing period, but I'm so glad that I didn't do what I, I sort of threatened to and, and I'm still here. Can you describe what had happened over the previous 12 years, which led you so close to losing your life? Yeah, I started gambling like a lot of people do at university for a bit of fun with my mates. It wasn't something that was part of life before that for various different reasons, um, but I'd never really been exposed to it in any way. And I started doing it at university. It was a bit of fun. I was playing professional cricket at the time and I was hooked pretty quickly. I don't think anyone's addicted immediately, but I loved everything about it. It ticked a lot of boxes for me and I started to probably do it more than I should have done. And I then sort of carried on playing cricket and in 2007, unfortunately, got released, which was a big turning point in my life because my dream was over. And I think anybody would find that kind of thing difficult, but I found it particularly difficult because I'd put a lot of pressure on myself. I felt like I'd let people down. And obviously, when that happens, you never really know how you're going to deal with moments like that. And, And I found it really tough. And I didn't want to let on to people that I was finding it tough. I went back to university and gambling started to play a slightly different part in my life. I started to do it more, but I didn't think it was a problem because financially and time-wise, I was fine. I graduated. I got a job, very good job in the city. And of course, then when I worked in insurance, the environment was then a kind of catalyst for even more gambling because it was all about money and that was part of the culture. And I started to do it more. But again, had the, the time and money to do it, although I think now the telltale signs were there in the sense that I was kind of lying about how much I was doing it. But then in 2010, I had a huge win. And what I didn't realize at, at that point was winning is probably when you're most vulnerable because it was at that point that I just thought I was invincible. I thought it would happen all the time. If it didn't, well, it will happen again at some point. But not just that, that's when I think it became more like a drug because if I didn't win that amount of money, it didn't give me the same rush buzz dopamine hit. And I started trying to win that amount of money all the time. It didn't happen. Reality set in. I lost. I lost that money very quickly, having not told anybody. When it had gone, I wanted it back. I started trying to win it back. And and that was the point where I started to get myself into a mess. I then in 2011 tried to change my lifestyle drastically because I thought if I changed my lifestyle, it would get rid of the problem. But I know now I had to change me. Um, But I decided to become a teacher because I thought if I get myself out of London, if I go and work in an environment, one of which I knew very well because my family were teachers, I've been brought up with it. I thought I won't have the time and money to do it. People don't behave like that. I'll be fine. But actually, it got worse for different reasons, I think. And, And one was that I didn't have as much money as a teacher, but also because of the time I then had, particularly in the holidays, I found really difficult. And I started to gamble more and more, my motivation always being, well, trying to get myself out of financial debt. But then, of course, I became addicted to it and everything about it. And to cut a long story short, over the course of the next few years, it would catch up with me in every way possible. And I'd eventually make decisions at work that I'd regret forever and rightly get found out because I'd compromised my position as a teacher by 
abusing it by approaching parents of pupils that I taught for my own financial gain to borrow money from them because I knew lots of these people had access to money and I lied to them and and I gambled all the money that they borrowed away and eventually the school would find out rightly so Um, and I knew I was gonna lose everything and I knew at that point it was the first time in 12 and a half years I wasn't going to be able to get myself out of it and my secret was going to be revealed to the world and I panicked. I wasn't thinking rationally. The irony of a gambling addiction is the only thing you think is going to get you out of it is the thing that's caused it in the first place. And I thought I could win my way out of the problem. And I tried during Cheltenham, the Cheltenham Festival in 2018, and it didn't work. And and I saw no way out. And at that point, I was on the verge of doing the unthinkable before, as we just said, I, I decided to to make the only good decision that I made in in that time and and reach out for help. And that was the turning point. And of course, there were then significant consequences, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But it was at that point that I could start my life again, really, and move forward. And it isn't until that point, until you put your hands up, you admit you've got a problem and that you need help, that recovery is is possible. But fortunately for me, I've I've been in recovery ever since and, and life has its challenges but it does for for everybody and it's so much better than it than it was let's go back to your own education now um both at primary school or or prep school and then at your secondary school how did your schooling prepare you for life at durham a life in the city for life as a professional cricketer i was incredibly fortunate in in my background and education i was uh, i was born and brought up in Kenya you wouldn't believe it looking at me but I spent the first few years of, of my life there because mum and dad were teaching there then I went to a prep school in, in Derbyshire which was fantastic it was slightly different for me because I was son of the headmaster of the school that I went to and, and that presented challenges but it also had good bits about it and then when I was 13 I got a scholarship to Oundle in Northamptonshire big boarding school where I would spend the next five years and despite a little bit of homesickness when I got there, the next five years that I'd spend at school were amazing. I I loved everything about it. I thrived in what was a very competitive and, and high achieving environment. I think it prepared me for a lot of things and I look back, as I just said, on my education with a lot of a fondness and a lot of great memories but the one thing I reflect on now interestingly is the one thing I don't think my education prepared me for was failure and dealing with adversity because in simple it didn't really happen to me when I was younger not much went wrong in my life when I was younger at school everything that I did I was fortunately pretty good at I didn't like failing I saw failing as a sign of weakness. I now know, of course, that it's so important to fail and make mistakes because that's how you learn. I was very fearful of it. But I think probably moreover was this kind of concept of adversity and facing challenges and things going wrong. Because again, I was very lucky that didn't really happen when I was younger. And then when it did in, in the real world, as I just said, about dealing with things like when my cricket career didn't end up as, as I wanted it to. I'd never really faced that before and and dealing with it as a young adult in the real world, having never been exposed to it was really tough. And I think I was quite, dare I say it, overconfident, arrogant as a young person. And 
I just assumed those moments were were easy to deal with. I thought, well, I'd just be one of those people who bounces back, who uses it to motivate themselves and you kind of go again. But actually, I really struggled. And I thought sort of showing vulnerability or admitting that I was struggling with anything was a sign of weakness because, again, that was kind of the environment I'd been brought up in. No fault of my parents, but but probably my education. So I didn't want to admit it. And I thought, well, I, I'll deal with this problem myself. I've dealt with every other problem I've ever had. And so it's there's kind of two ways of looking at it. In many ways, it was an incredible education. It gave me so many opportunities. It allowed me to do what I did cricket wise, and go on and get great jobs and go to a brilliant university. But in terms of as a person, it didn't probably prepare me as, as well as it needed to given what's happened and I've learned an awful lot about that. That's really interesting because we prepare children to move on to their senior schools and we give them that real invincibility. They leave secondary school with that, they arrive at university and and often for young people the first time they're going to feel failure aside from perhaps their driving test is in the world of work where they will have a sharp realisation and simply have no preparation for that. And you make loads of references in your book to that feeling of being invincible and having an air of invincibility. Elaborate a little bit more about that. Uh, Do you feel that came from school? Is that your character? Was that professional sport? Was that the pressure put put upon you through your cricket? I think a combination of, of all those things. I was just somebody who always put an awful lot of pressure on myself. I had very high expectations of, of myself and I wouldn't really settle for anything but the best or, or winning. And, and as I said, a lot of that did happen when I was younger. But I also think that it comes hand in hand with sport and having a very competitive nature, because I think that's probably what made me very high achieving was my kind of addictive personality, this very obsessive person who wouldn't let anything get in the way of achieving what I wanted to. But then, of course, when it does go wrong, how do you respond to it? And I think what is great now about education, the education system, and and I see it firsthand in the work that I do in schools, but also having a family who are all still, or until recently, involved in schools, is the education now is a lot more holistic. I look back on my time at what was an incredible school. The focus was very much on the academic side, the sports side. I think now we've we've seen a big change and I think that's really important because I think whilst that, if you get the balance right, that style of education is very effective. It does need to be complemented by actually understanding that vulnerability isn't a sign of weakness, that failure is okay, that reaching out for help is all right, that asking questions and leaning on other people, all that kind of thing. And it's much more balanced education now, which I think is important. I still think that more needs to be done around life skills. And I'd love to see even more around mental health, self-awareness. I want to talk about mental health in schools in a little bit. Before I do, there's another theme that comes through your book at Durham, Northamptonshire, and also in the city. And that's a laddish banter culture. You describe excessive drinking, boozy lunches, nights out, a complete disregard for, for money at times. You intimate that you had a, an expectation upon you to keep this up at Durham in your professional cricket life and, and in the city. 
How damaging do you feel that culture is? And to what extent do you feel that that needs challenging in society now for our school leavers? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic of of kind of conversation and something that I've reflected on hugely. I was always one of the boys, one of the lads, surrounded myself with kind of alpha males, if you like, or people that thought they were. And I think part of that was, again, I go back to this kind of competitive nature and desire to be the best. For me, everything in life, I wanted to do the best or the most. And I felt like I almost had that kind of reputation to uphold in in everything that I did. I always wanted to be the best at this, the best at that, but then also the one who could drink the most, who could have the most money. And actually it makes you realize that that's not what's important in life. But I think at the time I did, and I kind of went to every extreme to make sure that I did things because I thought that's what other people expected of me or or wanted. Actually, I don't think that's the case at all. It was just my perception. Part of that was coming from a kind of dressing room environment and culture. And again, that's changed a lot since the, the time when I was playing. And people talk a lot about kind of toxic masculinity. And I think that is still very definitely a thing and, and was certainly and, and I was definitely part of that and I think banter and, and having a laugh with your mates is is really important and but I think it's about balance. I use this word a lot. I look back at, at times and I think, well, used to do that so much. Did people really feel comfortable turning around and saying enough's enough or actually please don't say that to me? Absolutely not. Should they have or should they be in that position? Absolutely. And I think it's about getting a balance and finding a way of of still having that because I think it's really important, but not putting people in a position where actually they then feel that they can't talk about anything because if they do, what are the repercussions? What are the consequences going to be? And I think we've certainly seen some improvement, but I still think in in certain environments, there's a long way to go. And it's no coincidence, dare I say it, that a lot of my mates, and they won't mind me admit it, we've all had struggles and we found it really difficult to talk about them. And, And I think that says a lot about the kind of way we interacted and the fact that actually we it wasn't normal to talk about finding things difficult or struggling with anything. And, and it needs to be because we all do. Everybody does. Um, and I wish I'd learned that earlier in life. That's really interesting throughout your book. And as you became more aware of the difficulty you were getting into and your growing addiction to gambling, you talk about the signs that your poor mental health were there and you were doing your best to hide those signs and your friends perhaps weren't able to recognize it. Toxic masculinity is, is used a lot more now, and, and we're very aware of that in schools. Through your own journey, you struggle to recognize your own feelings and emotions. In recovery and now, do you have a much better recognition of your emotions? And do you now feel much more able to talk about them? Yeah, um, absolutely. I've realized that emotions are okay feeling them is very normal and having a real range of different emotions is okay but it's it's as important to talk about when you're happy and when everything's going well which is the easy part 
as it is to talk about when you're angry, when you're sad, when you're all those things. But I used to suppress the the negative emotions because I didn't think it was okay to feel or, or have those. And talking is, is such an important part of my recovery. I used to be a real closed book. I didn't let anything on to anybody. I was very difficult to read. I was also very good at, at hiding things, but actually I'm the opposite now. I'm, I'm very transparent, maybe maybe too much so at times, but that's important for me and, and it works for me. So I definitely feel much more comfortable with it. And, and actually what's really interesting is now I'm like that. Other people tend to be like that with me. And I think the other bit that you, you kind of mentioned there, which is really interesting, and it's one of my big regrets, is not having more self-awareness. I always knew when I was younger that I had a very addictive personality. I was, as I said, very obsessive, very compulsive, very competitive. But I always saw it as a bad thing. And actually now I realize it's, it's a real positive trait, but it just needs to be channeled in the right way. And I think that kind of self-awareness bit for young people is so important. Being aware of the type of person you are, your, your kind of things that are your strengths, things that perhaps hold you back a bit, using your strengths, but actually embracing your weaknesses as well. And I think that that kind of having that self-awareness is is so powerful and really helps me now kind of navigate life. And I, I think that's probably one of the things that I learned in, in rehab over and above everything else, because I can't change the way I am, but I didn't used to like some of the things, but actually I, I now do. And, I, and some of that is born out of comparing yourself with other people or, or, or wanting to be a certain person or, or type of person, actually being yourself and being honest with yourself, true to yourself and other people is, is probably the biggest skill in life. Absolutely. And so difficult for children to navigate as they grow up in a world of expectation, societal expectation, social media pressure and expectation. And as they leave primary school or prep school into their secondary school, that desire to mould themselves to be like the others and follow that group and authenticity is, is so important. We are challenging the stigma behind mental health. What do you think that schools, universities the city can do to increase awareness and visibility over mental health and challenge this banter, toxic masculinity, because we, we play a really important role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think education is the most important area, because I think if we can normalize conversations around it at a young age, it then doesn't become awkward or alien when people get older and, and they start to try and have those conversations in later life. So I think, yeah, education around it is really important. Normalizing that from a, from a young age, introducing these concepts in the right way from a young age and, and allowing people not to be afraid to, to talk about it. I think, of course, there's a big part for teachers and parents to play in, in terms of kind of modeling those things as well. Them normalizing those conversations, modeling vulnerability. I don't criticize my parents in any way. They're incredible people. But perhaps one of the things that I look back on and, and in my education, I probably found quite difficult was from a young age. Dad was the headmaster. He was seen as this kind of figurehead that was kind of invincible and I never really saw much vulnerability he's a very emotional guy but I never really saw much vulnerability 
from him or I saw him very much as that. And so I think that shows and he's learned the importance of that because, yeah, if that's what you believe you're supposed to be like, then that's what you're going to try and be like. So, yeah, I think schools have schools have a huge part to play. Uh, I think prioritising it is is really important. You, you talked a lot there about some of the, the challenges and some of these are very kind of new challenges. Social media, which can be one of the best tools around, can be so positive, but at the same time does kind of encourage this my life's better than yours kind of culture where people are constantly comparing themselves to, to other people. So education around all these things is is really important and introducing them as, as topics, I think, is is huge. And I think it's brilliant that schools are trying to, to address it and, and do something about it because it's probably more relevant now, given what we've all been through in the last 24 months than than ever before but I, I do think that it should be put on the same level as maths English which again is really really important it shouldn't be something that you do as an add-on it should be something that's front and center of, of everything and at university you had six lectures a week you'd gone from a very structured sixth form at Arundel to a lot of free time in Durham and the lure of corals was obviously very big indeed. Is the pastoral care and well-being at university prioritised enough? Not at all. It's probably changed and I can only speak for when I was there but obviously just the fact that one of the few areas that we now operate in as an organisation that specialises in Gambling harm prevention is probably the area where it's needed most, which is universities, and it's one of the few areas that that we don't work in. I think that says an awful lot. They're a very big, fragmented organisation, and there isn't the support there that needs to be there for people that probably need it more than anybody else. What the solution is, probably a lot of it boils down to finances, and there will be people that will say well we don't have the money to to do that it needs to be made available part of it is cultural as well if if people know that the help's there they're more willing to to use it but it needs to be available so I think you're absolutely right it's one area that I think is a real concern a lot of the people that I know who've who've struggled with issues of, of the kind that I did but also other similar issues university seems to be the place where it it all started or for some people can go really wrong and so more needs to be in place to support that demographic for sure were you a perfectionist yeah and still yes and no I am but I try not to be and that's probably been the biggest change I realized that nobody's perfect and nothing's perfect or very little is uh, and I'm okay with it not being and that it goes back to that kind of self-awareness thing gratitude plays an important part in life now and when things don't go right I used to look at if 90% of it went right I'd look at the 10% that didn't focus on that get hung up on it get upset about it and actually try and change my mindset now and look at the 90% that did go right and the positives and if you have that outlook on things it can change everything but there are still times where I have to very definitely remind myself because I fall back into kind of default which is to focus on the not so good because I want it to be a hundred percent right so yeah definitely. What would you say to a, a parent who was through love and through the very very best intentions putting 
too much pressure on their child academically, on the sports pitch, musically, in terms of building up that child's CV, possibly getting them into a school which might not be suited to their child, but again, with all the best intentions and really piling on that that pressure to be perfect. I would say it's not going to stand them in good stead long term. It might feel like the right thing to do short term, but actually you got to think of it long term. And I think sometimes I would say, and it's I can say this sort of thing now, but what, why is it that you're doing that? What what are you trying to achieve? And putting the the actual well-being of the individual first is the most important thing because nothing is is more important than that and actually I think what's really interesting about the world that I operate in now the people that I deal with on a day-to-day basis is actually a lot of the people that end up going through things like I did or, or similar things are the people that had too much pressure put on themselves by other people or by themselves and I think that's proof that long term it doesn't do anybody any good and it boils back to that kind of conversation about well it doesn't matter what somebody else is doing it's about what's right for you and what's right for that individual because so often we do things because you're worried about how it might be perceived by other people but actually that's irrelevant compared to to what's right for the individual so I would say think about actually the well-being of, of that young person because pressure is, it does take its toll, whether it's you putting it on yourself or other people, it's it's tough and, and often nothing is ever going to feel like it's good enough and then it comes to the point where you've just, you just have enough. And I, I definitely think that was one of the the many reasons for the issues that I had was once something went really wrong it was almost like right I now need to find an outlet and I'm just going to let off all this steam that I've been building up for an awful awfully long time but as I said that pressure came from from me rather than other people do you feel if you hadn't fallen into gambling do you feel that there was a mental health problem brewing in any case I think so because of a lack of regard or respect for it I think my addictive personality may well have manifested itself in in something else. I'd never say I was an alcoholic, but as I allude to in the book, I had issues with with alcohol. I still contend with various sort of mental health issues now. I don't mind admitting it. I suffer from anxiety, which seems extraordinary for someone who stands up in front of hundreds of people and and speaks to them every day. But actually, I have real social anxiety. But I'm okay with that. And I learned to deal with it. And I accept it's it's okay. My issue with mental health was I felt these things, but I didn't feel like it was okay to feel them. And actually, as soon as you overcome that and you realize it is okay to, to have those things, feel those things and learn to manage them, then you can manage them. It's exactly that. One of the most moving parts of the book, and I think one of the most impressive things about your story is that you knew you had to face the consequences of 12 years of your life. And the weekend you started your recovery when you had WhatsApped your brother and your family came to you and wrapped you in kindness, you knew you had to show the courage and honesty the following week. And part of that, I believe, was phoning up those who you owed money in between therapy sessions and having a very honest conversation with them. That must have taken real courage. And how did it feel? 
it was without doubt the hardest thing I had to do other than obviously telling mum and dad and, and Charlotte in the immediate aftermath. But it was really tough to, to speak to those people and say, look, actually, do you know what? What I said was going on wasn't I've been lying to you because there was no sugarcoating that either. I'd, I'd been incredibly dishonest. It was incredibly tough. Their reaction in every case almost was very different to what I thought it was going to be and how I'd played it out in my head that whole time. And actually, whatever their reaction was, I was able to deal with it because it was the unknown that was almost worse. But it was it was difficult, but I felt so such an overwhelming sense of relief after I'd done it because people then knew the truth and, and they could react in whatever way they chose to. But at least I had been honest with everybody and, and myself and that put me at ease. And of course, as you said, there were consequences. There were going to be consequences that I had to deal with it. But until that moment, I wasn't able to move forward. And as soon as I'd done that, I could start moving towards some sort of solution, whatever that solution was. There was a huge amount of relief as well as as kind of fear and anxiety that, that came with it. And people say it's courageous and it's obviously very kind, but it felt like what I had to do. And it was so important that I did it. It's a very good lesson in taking responsibility and doing that whilst going through recovery. From that moment onwards, did you feel safe? Did you know that as soon as you opened up to your brother, to your mother and father, to Charlotte, that you knew that you were on the road to recovery? And I know you slept an awful lot in those first few days. Was there a feeling of enormous relief that you had been saved? Yeah, I mean, that was the overriding emotion was relief. My biggest issue was that I, and I've always been like this, I wanted a quick fix. I wanted, okay, right, what do we do now? How do we do this? How do we solve this problem? And one of the biggest things was being sat down very early on in my treatment and being told, you're not going to get a quick fix to this. This is going to take an awful long time. It's going to take an awful lot of hard work. But the fact that you're here, the fact that you want to do something about it, you're going to be able to move forward and it will be a case of baby steps, but they'll be going in the right direction. That was a big kind of hurdle and realization for me. And once I'd got over that, then I was on, on the road to recovery. As as you said, it was made so much easier knowing that I had the support around me that I did. Without it, I don't know whether I'd be where I am now, but I'm obviously very grateful for it. And I think, as you said, that word safety is, I had I had nowhere to hide anymore. And that was, whilst very exposing, was also very important because right now, you, now you've got to move forward. And I think the point in, in my treatment where I realized, okay, you can spend however long you want now. And of course, you've got to dig up the past and you've got to go through all that. But the one thing you're not going to be able to do is change it. As much as you'd love to, you can't. You can only change the future that was huge for me and and i i look back but i don't stare that's a wonderful mantra to have you start every presentation with a number on your first slide can you tell me what number you are today and and what does that signify yeah i actually um have stopped doing the number because it was taking up too much space on the presentation i actually have the date um which was the 22nd of march 2018 which was the day that i placed my last bet and that I've, I've been in recovery since it's very nearly four years and those anniversaries are important. I still celebrate them more so than my birthday, which comes two days before. 
but it is really significant and and every day that goes past feels like a win and it's a better win than than I've ever had when when I was gambling so it's another way of just keep looking forward and and keep moving in the right direction. March is always a a strange month for me and an emotive one in in many different ways, but one that now I'm able to look back on with a lot of pride for for kind of how far I've come, but is a constant reminder of of where I don't want to go back to. And how are you with your mental health? Yeah, I'm I'm good. Life has not been without challenges. I think I found what came with lockdown and, and isolation difficult and I cope with it a lot better than than I would have done a few years ago. I think I'm just so acutely aware of it and I put it over and above everything else now that nothing's more important. But there are days where I don't feel so good. I'm open about those. I talk about them and I know they'll pass and another good day is just around the corner. I've had a few personal challenges over the last year. And again, that's that's what happens in life. It's how you navigate those. And they're the points in life where you've got to kind of put it even more front and center. As I said, I, I manage anxiety, my addictive personality day to day, some days more than others, but I've got strategies and and ways of doing that and nothing's more important. Patrick, I'm going to ask you to finish with three bits of advice. Firstly, advice to parents and teachers reflecting on your own journey on addiction, on mental health, and some of the themes that we've discussed today. I think one of the biggest things for parents and teachers is to treat every individual as an individual. Everybody is very different. I think sometimes it's very easy to try and treat everybody the same or want everybody to be the same or like somebody else. Why can't you be like X, Y or Z? But actually everybody's their own person and and embrace them for, for what it is. But I think on that is often we, as I think teachers and parents, and I look back on my own teaching career, I'm not a parent yet, look back on my teaching career and I used to really worry or give extra care and attention to someone who might be outwardly struggling with something. But actually, we need to be very aware of everybody because it's often people that you least expect it to be who are dealing with issues of this kind. So actually treating every individual differently, but also with equal importance is, is the most important thing, I think. Thanks, Patrick. That's really great advice. And now to a an adult who is, say, mid-30s your age, who is struggling, they can see the signs of, of poor mental health. What would your advice be to anyone in that position? I now live my life by mantra saying a problem shared is a problem halved. And it's a bit of a cliche. But do you know what? It changed my life because I never used to talk about my problems. I used to think I could deal with every problem that I ever had. I was so proud. Actually, as soon as I shared my problem with somebody, it got better. And now I talk about my problems and and they all get better. Not necessarily straight away. And it doesn't mean the problem's solved or gone as soon as you tell somebody. But you can't deal with all these things. You can't deal with everything that life throws at you yourself. And actually just telling someone, and it might not be the first person you tell, but actually once you tell people, it gets easier and and the problem is so much easier to deal with with the support of others. 
it's much easier to to keep quiet, not say anything and suffer in silence. And it's not the solution. It's harder to speak up. It's the hardest thing you'll have to do. But if you do it, my word, it's it's the best thing you'll ever do. And looping right back to the start of our discussion, what would you say to yourself now, standing on the platform at Slough in March 2018, intent on completing suicide? I think life is so precious. And what I was about to do is very definitely a temporary solution. Uh, there is always a way out and and life is is a gift it's so precious make the most of it and and if things go wrong if you make mistakes we all do but actually you can rectify those you you can undo them but there are too many people that will miss you when you're gone if you're not here and that's what keeps me going every day even if even if life is really bad for me and I've had a bad day and everything's gone wrong I know that there's other people that care and love me as much more than I love myself. And, and I think that's really important. And that's what I'd always kind of say to myself. You, So many things go on in life. Just last the end of last week, one of my sort of cricketing heroes and, and idols died in such sort of sudden and shocking circumstances. And you only realise when kind of someone like that's gone, how, how big an impact he had on so many people. And Actually, you don't have to be famous or a genius like he was. Your life is precious to you, but it's also very precious to other people. Patrick, thank you so much. It's been really interesting talking to you, inspiring. Uh, thanks for having me, and it's brilliant that you're doing this. I really enjoyed my discussion with Patrick. I'm in awe of the courage he shows in retelling his own journey and his humble approach to the consequences he had to face up to. He agrees that whilst education has moved on, Schools and universities must do more to enable young people to be comfortable with who they are without the need to prove themselves. I hope you've enjoyed our first podcast. I recommend Patrick's book, Might Bite, to anyone keen to explore the issues further. And if you would like to be a guest on our podcast series, please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you.